Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Sabine Alchidiak, your host for today, and I'm stepping in to host this very special episode, which I'm going to go ahead and call The Curious Task Book Club episode. Today, I'm speaking with Christy Horpidal. Christy Lynn Horpidal is the assistant editor and a frequent contributor at adamsmithworks.org and econlib. Prior to working at Liberty Fund, she was the assistant director of the Arkansas Center for Research and Economics at the University of Central Arkansas. She studied the liberal arts at St. John's College in Annapolis and Santa Fe. She earned a master's degree at the University of Chicago, where she focused on the intersection of economics and psychology. She lives with her husband, two kids, and two guinea pigs in Arkansas. She's always torn between rereading a favorite book or starting a new one. If you know a good way to decide between the two, she hopes you reach out and let her know. Welcome to the podcast, Christy. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. So Christy, our question today is how can books advance liberal society? To give our listeners a bit more context, today we're going to be discussing one book in particular, uh, The Bookshop by Penelope Fitzgerald, and use that as a dropping off point to discuss the potential importance of the book in a liberal society. Um, It's also a good opportunity for us to talk about a lot of other book-related topics like book burning, powerful, the powerful making decisions on the importance of literature and things like that. Now, Christy works for Liberty Fund, which is an organization basically dedicated to the exploration of literature in the hopes of advancing liberty. I myself work for the ILS, which carries out lots of programming that involves reading uh, great works and discussing them in order to gain a deeper understanding of those works and perhaps their influence on liberty and society. So I think we're pretty great candidates to have this conversation here today. (laughs) But before we get started, I want to talk a little bit about this book and its author. And I'd love for you to fill us in on what the book is about, the plot who the author is, and anything else you think is relevant before we start talking about it. Great. Well, this is an author that I had never heard of, and once I read her first book, I wanted to read everything by her. So her name's Penelope Fitzgerald. She didn't start writing until she was a little bit older Um, in her life. I think she was 60 before she published her first book, but she made up for lost time. She's won several awards, and she's considered by some to be one of the great English novelists. Um, People often compare her to Jane Austen or uh, Muriel Sparks, who is another one of my favorite authors. Um, And I think if you read even just the first few pages of any one of her books, you're going to see why she gets compared to such other amazing authors. Um, I particularly love this book because it's about books. And I think it's it's fun, especially if you are a big reader, to think about all the things that go on with someone selling books or the market for books. Um, but it's also really interesting because it's a, a book about a bookshop that isn't really about books. Um, it's about the people who are involved in the creation and eventually the destruction of the bookshop. And you get to meet a lot of interesting characters, but you also get to see a lot about life along the way. Um, The actual timeline in the book is very short. I think it's only a year, but a lot happens in that year. And I'm excited to talk to you about it today. Um, Sorry. Uh, Sorry, Eric, you're going to hear a lot of this. This is our editor (laughs) because my throat hurts and that's just the way it's going to have to be. Sorry. (laughs) So you can edit all of this out. Um, So there's also a film adaptation that was made um, that I watched in anticipation of this of this recording it was also really good um so can you tell us a little bit about the story uh sort of walk us through the story a little bit who the main characters are and the difference the one main difference between the book and the movie so a lot of our listeners haven't read the book or, or anything like that so yeah of course so uh Penelope Fitzgerald once described the book as a short novel with a sad ending. And while that is a true description of the book, um, the the main character is a woman named Florence Green, and she lives in a small seaside English town, and she's widowed. She has no children. She's firmly in the middle of her life, and she wants to do something that leaves an impression on the world around her. And what she decides to do is to open a bookshop in a town that it's not clear actually wants a bookshop. So there are lots of other characters that you meet in the book and in the movie, some of whom are sort of her allies, some of who are her enemies. 
And it's about how this woman does something that doesn't seem like something she would do. Um, but there's a line early on in the book where she says she she wanted to remind the world that she existed. And the way that she does that is to, to open a bookstore. The movie uh, is a little bit different in a couple ways, mostly at the end, but a lot of the ambiguity that exists in the books about the relationships between certain characters, the director of the movie basically just makes a decision and says, in the book, it's a little ambiguous whether this is a flirtation or not, um, but the movie just goes ahead and says like, yes, it's a flirtation. Or um, there are parts in the movie where uh, Penelope Fitzgerald is the author, maybe leave something to you as the reader, but the director has to make a decision on it in order to, to show the story in the movie. So, so you don't get exactly her book, but I think you do get um, a lot of the very charming parts of her book come across. Um, even though the big change at the end, I actually think does change the entire message of the book, but maybe we can talk about that a little later. Yes. And so uh, we have this uh, widow who is uh, trying to open this bookshop. And then, of course, we have the bad guy who is a one Violet Gammert, <laughs> who's the rich lady in town who wants to create a art center uh, in the building, the very building that, um, you know, that Penelope Fitzgerald talks about Florence wanting to purchase to have the uh, bookshop situated in so i don't know why she can't get another place but this is the place that she has chosen for her art center um and then we've got our, our bad guy who's who's violet again she's doing everything she can in her power she uses the levers of the law there's her nephew who's an mp unfortunately <laughs> things like that uh to take her down and, and make sure that she gets what she wants at the end because she's rich and she's used to that so we've got also our another main character who's Mr. Brundish uh, of Holt House. So these this is the time this is the time history in the fifties in Britain where people were defined by the house they lived in. I love that. <laughs> you know you're in for a wild ride when people are like Mr. Brundish of Holt House and everyone just knows who you are. Um, that's pretty cool. He's also a widower, and one thing that's different between the book and the movie is that uh, there's some sort of like romantic tension between. I don't know if I misunderstood that in the movie, but between Florence Green and Mr. Brundish, and that was a bit strange for me because they seemed very mismatched. But fine, whatever. I'm not judging. <laughs> but in the book, that does not happen at all. Um, and wh while we're still talking about romance, the mo the movie also makes it seem like she's really into it, uh, opening this bookshop because her and her husband's we're really into like hanging out at bookshops or like reading and stuff so it's not just her dream it's like something that she's thought up with her husband so there has to be that you know male influence like she's misses her husband so much that she must do this for him um that's the vibe you get from the movie but in the book I think it's a lot more like this is something I want to do now that I have nothing else to do I've lost my husband I have some money from him I'm going to use this money to open this bookshop because it's something I'm interested in. So I thought those were two interesting things before we get to the ending, which is like totally different. And yeah, I just want to get through the whole plot a little bit before we start talking about the book, just so that people know what we're talking about a little bit. And then we'll get deeper into it as we speak about the different themes. But uh, those are the main characters <clears throat> and a, a small and a young child called Christine, who I love. Very cute, both in the book and in the movie. Uh, Penelope, Penelope Fitzgerald really knows how to write her children in a very interesting way. I think um, that's something that a lot of authors lack, uh, even like the great authors in history. They really, they're really, really bad at writing either women or children. <laughs> I'm not really sure what's the problem there, but this is like a consistent issue. Children are either annoying or um, like non-existent, or they're just there to like serve a plot point just to move the plot along. But she has her whole, she has a whole personality uh, in the book. And uh, I really like that. And and you can really see her in the book before you even see the movie. Like you can imagine what she looks like in your mind. And she's kind of a snot-nosed kid, but she's awesome at the same time. <laughs> she's lippy, but I like it. <laughs> so it's another great character who works in the bookshop at only 10 years old or something, which is totally normal, apparently. <laughs> I'm so sure. What, what year are we talking about here, Christy? Sorry to... Um, I think it starts in 1959 and it ends in 1960 is the the timeline of the of the book. And you were about to say something. Please go ahead. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, I kind of think of the characters in the book as being divided between um, Florence's allies and Florence's enemies. Uh, But one of the interesting things in the book is there are some people that she thinks are her allies who actually end up being her enemies. Uh, I don't think there's anyone in the reverse direction, but Christine is definitely kind of an ally of hers. Um, Mr. Raven, Wally uh, are all allies of hers. And then on the other side, she has this, this idea of older, moneyed, high society who who has this idea of what art should be, right? Uh, and their idea of art is mid-century watercolors, and, and those should be displayed, and those should be looked at. Um, whereas on the other side, you have Florence, who, who cares deeply about beauty, and she cares deeply about kindness, and she's not necessarily a great businesswoman, but she's somebody who clearly loves books and loves the idea of sharing these books with other people. And, you know, the book is only 150 pages. I'm reading the um, <clears throat> the HarperCollins version of this book. So that's a, about 150 pages. Thank you for sending it to me, Christy, because American Amazon sometimes is better than Canadian Amazon. So thank you for sending that to me. Uh, it's about 150 pages. And within this 150 pages of a fiction, mind you, <laughs> which is something that I think uh, I'm not used to, and the listeners of this podcast aren't, aren't used to because we're usually doing nonfiction books on this on this podcast, but this is a fiction. It's 150 pages, but it packs so many different topics that are related to classical liberalism. It's amazing. Um, in such a small text, uh, and it's just a story, like somebody telling a story, but it, it really is so reflective of so many things. Uh, we talk about a lot in, on this podcast uh, with a lot of other people throughout the years we've been doing this. And um, although there are a lot of themes that we come across in reading the bookshop that matter to us a lot as class liberals, there are some that I identified that are important maybe because they triggered something in me and the things I care about. So I would love your input into different ones that I may not have caught on to, but these are the ones that actually uh, resonated for me. So <clears throat> the ones I identified include public choice and its serious effects on literature and creativity, the effects of power in general on liberalism, uh, and the misunderstanding that many people have uh, the meaning and usefulness of free markets. And we've talked about that previously on the podcast as well. Um, like what, for example, what do people think about Adam Smith and what did he actually say? <laughs> Things like that. So um, I'm sure you can add many more, but let's start with those and go from there, if that's okay with you. And the first one I want to talk about is public choice and its effects on literature and creativity. Uh, but before we start talking about that, can you remind our listeners quickly what public choice is exactly and maybe a transition from that into how it affects this book? So what I love about this book is I think it's teaching you a lot of economics without the author necessarily intending to teach you any economics at all. She's just talking about people and what people do. Um, public choice, as I think about it, is making the same assumptions about people who work in government uh, as people who work not in government and saying, look, everybody's flawed. Um, Everybody has good and bad parts and certain institutions uh, allow different sorts of virtues and vices to manifest themselves more easily. So I think the public choice part of this book, if you want to look at it through that lens, is when um, Mrs. Gammart chooses to use the law as a way to push Florence Green out of her house. So She tries several different methods to get what she wants for Florence, but the thing that actually gets Florence in the end is that Mrs. Gammart uses her nephew (laughs) to pass a law that at first doesn't seem like it's going to affect Florence, but then through small changes that nobody notices, eventually at the end of the book, uh, her house is the house that she has the bookshop in, the house where she lives is basically taken away from her and she receives uh, no compensation for it. So Mrs. Gammert, because she can't get what she wants any other way, uses her her social position, her social connections, um, and she uses the law to get what she wants. And I think she does it in a very sneaky, upsetting way. Um, And in such a way that Florence doesn't even realize what's happening until it's already happened. And I think for people who are skeptical about um, what people in power can do, um, I think there's there's a lot happening in this novel that isn't 
necessarily what the novel's about, but it also is a big part of what happens to these characters. So as liberals, we often praise the usefulness of local committees and local knowledge in general and solving problems as opposed to central planning. But it occurs to me when, it occurred to me when I was reading the bookshop, it sort of shows us how both of those things could actually work against the potential interest of business and, and prosperity. Uh, two things liberals tend to care very much about. What do you think about that idea? Yeah, so what's interesting is the way that um, Mrs. Gammert manages to use levels levers at different levels of government, right? So she has the act that gets passed that allows the city council to, to, to take the property because she's rich. She can fund the project in a way that the city council wouldn't actually be able to fund it without her pushing for it. So, um, and I think you see how powerful she is, not only because she's connected, but also because she's rich and because she is unscrupulous. <laughs> she she doesn't care about the fact that she's destroying Florence's life. Um, and she doesn't care about the fact that she's depriving her town and the people in it of a bookstore. Um, she, she knows what she wants. Um, she was thwarted. And then she she just comes in and she destroys things until it's as close to what she wants as she can get it using all of these different levers of power. So um, I think in a cheer, more cheerful version of the story, you would see something like someone would step in at one of those levels and sort of save Florence. Um, but, but nobody does that. Mr. Brundish tries, um, but he fails and actually the attempt at least in the book, it's very clear the attempt kills him, right? He dies kind of trying to convince Mrs. Gammert to leave Florence alone. And Mrs. Gammert won't, um, but he, he, he collapses outside of her house right after this sort of monumentous attempt to, to convince her. Um, we should also mention he's, he's an older gentleman. He's presented as very frail and not in great health. And in the book, he, he doesn't, often leave his home. So even just his decision to walk to the steed where Mrs. Gammert lives and, and everyone in town is watching him thinking, where is he going? He never leaves, but he makes this last big grand effort on behalf of Florence and, and on behalf, I think, kind of of books and being a lover of books. And it kills him. And in a happier novel or a happier movie, someone would stop Mrs. Gammert, but nobody does. Um, in the last scene in the book is Florence sailing away. She can't even drive away because they've taken her car, right? Um, to pay for the loan that she took out from the bank. Um, and and I think it for those of us who care about what abuses of power look like, you see all the levels here. Um, and, and poor Florence gets hit by all of them. And I'm glad you talk about power because it's the second thing that I pointed out as important, an important theme of this book. And so, as you said, we're introduced this horrible woman, Viola Gammert, who wields her power quite obviously through her wealth and influence in the town and is not ashamed of doing so. And eventually through the position of her nephew in parliament. And that's what really does her in, in the end and um, does Florence Green in, in the end. And this is the classic villain who you just like love to hate. But you know, there could be an argument that she just wants to advance the arts, Christy. <laughs> She's using her power for good. She wants to have a center for the arts. <laughs> I think I, I have no better response than to quote Mr. Brundish saying, she thinks that the arts could even have a center, right? Um, I, I, don't, I don't buy that she cares about the arts. I think she cares about what she wants. And getting what she wants. Um, Florence even makes the point, the old house had stood vacant for over seven years. Everyone in the town was watching it get destroyed. And in the back of her head, Mrs. Gammert kinds of thinks it would be nice if that was an art center. But Florence, who takes a risk as an entrepreneur to actually create something, um, does what, what no one else in that town does. She takes something that's, that's, crumbling before everyone's eyes and she turns it into a place where people can buy Chinese silk bookmarks or dictionaries or even novels, right? Um, so she she takes a resource that's being forgotten and slowly destroyed and and makes it into something something new. And Mrs. Gammert doesn't have any sort of 
respect for that. She just doesn't like that Florence is doing something different than what she had imagined. And I think there's something to be said also to uh, who's going to be going to attend all these art things. I mean, bookshops are, um, there's something in the book in the, in the, in the, and also they say it in the movie that, um, you know, people are just walking around looking at the books and Christina's annoyed. She's like, they're not even buying anything. What's going on? And she said, this is, that's just how it's done at bookshops. You, part of the culture is that you just wander around and, and discover things. Um, and that's, a really cool part of a bookshop that's what I do a lot of the time I walk into a bookshop sometimes I don't buy something every single time but I just like to walk around and see what's up what's new what kind of gems can I find amongst all the other books um and if I can't find anything that's okay I've had a really good time every time um that I go into a bookshop and that's something that I would do way more than going to an art center which I don't think I've ever done <laughs> I guess I go watch like a play at a place in Ottawa once in a while called the National Arts Center. Uh, now, that, now, whenever I go there, I'm going to be thinking of this book. Thank you so much. But, <laughs> but I mean, it's like it's not a place where I just go and like, oh, I feel like painting today. I'm going to go to the Arts Center and paint something, or I'm going to go watch someone paint something. Who the heck does that? I don't even know what an Arts Center really does. <laughs> so, so there is that argument of like, who's actually going to the Arts Center? Probably people like, um, you know, Violet and her Richie Rich friends. Uh, not the not the less wealthy part of that community. Yeah, you're definitely bringing up this tension in the book between uh, something that's a business and something that's sort of like a, a con almost a consumption good for rich people, right? Um, Florence does think of herself as a tradeswoman, as a, a businesswoman. She's not a philanthropist. She's not running a charity. Um, she she even has, you know, clear, explicit line where she talks about that. She even says, I can't run my shop at a loss, right? She needs to be a tradeswoman. She needs to be a professional. Now, she's she's not always business savvy, but she is trying to provide something. Um, and, I, and I do think part of it's nostalgia. You find out in the book that she had worked at a bookstore when she was younger, and so it's a business she knows. And you kind of get the feeling that those were happy times for her before where she fell in love with her husband um before she got married before he died before they didn't have children right um so i think part of what she's doing is nostalgia but part of it is just wanting to make a mark in the sand as she she realizes she might not have done anything else in her whole life that does something like that um yeah. And you just reminded me of something. Um, if any of you at home are going to read this book, I highly recommend you pick up uh, this book. But on page four of the version I, I talked about earlier, um, the bank manager is super annoying <laughs> and pretentious and patriarchal and just the typical person, typical man working in a bank that you can imagine in your head in the 1950s and 60s. <laughs> says um do you hope to give our little town a service that it needs do you hope for sizable profits are you perhaps mrs green a jogger along with little understanding of the vastly different world which the 1960s may have in store for us but like why not both why can't she have a nice service for the uh little town uh in the form of bookshop and also make profits and then in the next page she says um Culture is for amateurs. I can't run my shop at a loss. Shakespeare was a professional, which I thought was very funny. Uh, so that shows that. But then it kind of changed a little bit when she were introduced to her conundrum about selling the book Lolita, which I'd love to talk about more later. Um, and she says, you know, money isn't the point. On this one, she says money isn't even the point. You know, and you read later on in the book, she says, it would make money, you know, the worst if worse came to worst from the individual who was telling her to sell the book in her shop. And she said, that isn't the point. Um, and it really was not because she wanted to only sell good books. That was her thing. Like, I only sell good books here. I don't just sell anything. So is it really about profit for her? Uh, I, I'm interested in the profit dynamic and what you think about that. I, I don't think she's in it for the money. I think she does have sort of a deep respect for books um, and ideas. And I think she wants to share that with people. But it's important that she does it in in a way that feels good to her. Um, I love the scene where when Christine first comes in to help her, she basically finds some like sample greeting cards that are a little bit naughty. And uh, Christine's like, people in town will buy these. And uh, Florence is like, 
nope, I think she puts them in a drawer <laughs> somewhere else. Um, Cause that's not her vision for what her bookstore should be. That's not her vision for what kind of a service she should be providing to this little town. And, and that actually does come up again later in the book when um, Mrs. Gammert has also uh, basically encouraged someone else in a nearby town to open a bookstore that's directly competing with Florence's, which is part of the destruction of Florence's bookshop um, is related to that. And there's even a line about that bookstore that says like, it sells certain kinds of books that are not books that Florence would stock, right? So there's this suggestion there also of, of Florence has a way that she wants to do something and she's not just trying to make money. She's trying to, to create something else that isn't just about profit. Um, when she buys 200 hand-painted red silk Chinese bookmarks. She even knows this is a terrible business decision, but she says they're beautiful. Um, and she wanted to buy them because they were beautiful. And I think that's a, a deep part of her character is she's she's looking for things that are beautiful. She's trying very hard to be kind. Um, and in Penelope Fitzgerald's book, that basically leads to her being a victim, right? Um, there's this part where... Uh, Fitzgerald talks about what it what it means to be an exterminator or an exterminate, right? Um, and, and this is talking about about Florence, and it says she blinded herself, in short, by pretending for a while that human beings were not divided into exterminators and exterminees, with the former at any moment predominating. Um, and so, I think Fitzgerald here is really giving us her view of the world that. That some people like Mrs. Gammert and the people who enable Miss, Mrs. Gammert are, um, they're trying to exterminate things like beauty and kindness and, and they succeed in the book. And I would include that list entrepreneurship because <laughs> I think a huge theme that we can take away from this that's really important to classical rules as well is, is uh, entrepreneurship and the fact that you are making the world a better place by making a profit sometimes so she's making her um her community better off by having a bookshop but she's also making money and those two things are not incompatible you can't you don't have to have one without the other and that's something that um you know liberals discuss a lot and that we get a lot of pushback on a lot of the time i think this book is a really good example of how you can do both um and how the law could crush you, <laughs> could crush entrepreneurship as it did so so nicely in this book. Um, I don't know what, what your thoughts on that are. <laughs> yeah, I think she gets crushed in in two big ways. I think there is the legal crush, the sort of like Mrs. Gammer wins the game, right? And the bookstore store gets closed. I actually think there's a different kind of crushing <laughs> that is even worse. And that's this, this lie that gets perpetrated by uh, Colonel Gammert when he, he goes and he tells Florence that in the end, Mr. Brundish thought that the art center was better than her bookstore. So this is, this is false, right? So Mr. Brundish goes to Violet to try to convince him to leave Florence alone. He dies immediately afterwards. Presumably, Violet then tells her husband that actually Mr. Brundish had come to support the art center, and he had he had seen that this was actually better for the city. And then the colonel, uh, Mrs. Gammert's husband, goes and tells this to Florence on the day of Mr. Brundish's funeral. And so I actually think that's the worst thing that happens in this book, because she doesn't realize that that's a lie. So she actually... At the end of the book, she thinks that this one person who has been her champion and her friend actually wasn't, even though he died trying to be her champion and her friend. Um, and I think that's the most wicked thing that Violet Gammert actually does. I think it's more wicked than passing the law. I think it's more wicked than manipulating the city council. I think sending her husband off to tell Florence that. Mr. Brundish, in the end, didn't think that the bookshop was better than an art center is the, is the cruelest, the cruelest thing that happens in the book. And there's no one to disabuse her of the notion, right? Like, she'll never know that that's not true. Um, even though you would hope that part of her would know that Mr. Brundish 
wouldn't actually have done that. In the movie, she doesn't believe it. <laughs> See, movies, oh, movies, I'm telling you. <laughs> um, and I mean, there's a lot of references to the law. Just the, my last point on the power thing uh, in the book is a lot of references to the law being so important. What can you do when it's the law? Like, there's nothing you can do. It's the law. That's it. Like, the second this MP, for whatever reason, was at a party. Uh, at one of her parties and he came up with this idea obviously not on his own he pretends like he came up with this idea of listening to conversation but it was obviously planted in his mind by his aunt um and he goes and does it in some sort of omnibus bill it seems like nobody even noticed <laughs> he was doing it uh nobody noticed the law no one cared it just sort of happened everyone's like well it's the law so i guess you are homeless now um that's very reflective of, of society i think and i don't want to get too preachy about it but i mean that's exactly what happens you legal you make things illegal like you make being poor illegal <laughs> that's why people are homeless a lot of the time because they're not able to do the things they need to do to get out of that homelessness and out of that poverty uh, because some guy heard at a party once that maybe this would be a cool thing to do and make him look good as an mp uh <laughs> so that's really um power I mean, that's a power thing in and of itself and makes me very upset um, in the book and in society in general. And it's, yeah, Fitzgerald is also really clear that all of this stuff is happening through subtle suggestions. All of this is happening through kind of gentle persuasions or kind of nudges. Um, and it's so clear that Mrs. Gammert is the architect behind it. But it's in a way it's we haven't talked yet about the fact that the bookshop is also haunted <laughs> so uh it that's one of my favorite parts of the book is is how she deals with the ghost it's actually not a ghost it's called a wrapper um because it rocks on things and bangs on things and moves things around in the other room um and, and so you have these two sort of unseen forces in florence's life that are controlling these things around her you have mrs gammert <laughs> who in some sense is, is the more malicious unseen power. And then you also have this right there in her home, you have uh, the rapper who is also, she inherits it when she gets the house, uh, everybody in town knows about it. And it's just a question of how, how are we going to deal with this? And I love that it was just a fact about the house. Like there's, there's a poltergeist upstairs. Like we're not questioning this. It just is a thing that is there. And uh, she kind of misses him when he stops uh, rapping at the, <laughs> near the end of the book he's like i would have even welcomed the poltergeist the rapper <laughs> there's a wet basement there's a damp oyster house and there's a rapper right. so is there anything that we haven't talked about with regards to power and liberalism um in the book and and how it represents that before we move on uh i don't think i have anything else to say on those but they will probably come up again as we continue the conversation so the third thing that I mentioned uh, earlier was I want to talk about the misunderstanding of many people of the meaning and usefulness of free markets. So often others look at classical liberals like ourselves or even great classical liberal thinkers like Adam Smith and I sort of chalk them up to profit crazed, morally corrupt individuals <laughs> who only want to make money, even if it means stepping on the necks of others. Um, if that's the case, then classical liberals might say, well, the market has spoken. This business just could not thrive in this small town. In fact, the banker actually does say this near the end of the book. He says, I should not advise you to try another small business. It's curious how many people look upon the bank as no more than a charitable institution. There comes a time when each of us must be content to call it a day. And I've actually heard this argument from classical liberals in the <laughs> Like, you know, they just didn't have a good business model. The market has spoken. They just need to shut down. <laughs> so um, you have that idea of this misunderstanding of what the market actually is and what a free market, I should say, actually is. Um, now, this is absolutely infuriating because I'll bet if this was a true story, it's totally within reason that someone pens an article saying the death of the small bookstore is just the slow march of progress or something <laughs> Uh, but often we misread a situation like fraught with legal and bureaucratic issues as something that's just reflective of the market when it's exactly the opposite. Uh, and that's my little spiel on that. So I'll, I'll hand it over to you. <laughs> so I, I agree that I don't think Florence is a very savvy businesswoman, but I do think she is doing her best. And I think she 
had a trajectory that could have ended in success were it not for all of these obstacles that Mrs. Gammert deliberately throws in her way, right? Um, the law, uh, trying to influence the bankers, trying to influence her solicitor. Um, I suspect that uh, one of the customers that gets sent in is actually kind of sent by Mrs. Gammert to disrupt things. Um, her encouraging someone else to open a bookstore in the next town, her uh, her machinations, which result in a in a in a library being open that has a lending library that cuts into <laughs> one of her more profitable businesses. Um, so, in a sense, it, it is true that she was not able to make enough profit to overcome all of these challenges, but I also think. The challenges that she's being asked to overcome in such a short period of time that she can't even understand how they're all happening. Um, it's impossible what Mrs. Gammert has done to her. And I don't think even a very savvy businesswoman, which she is not, um, would be able to overcome all of those things. But I do think she is providing people something that is good for them. Um, and and one of the things that I loved about the book was her talking about the things that people are actually interested in buying. So as someone who loves books, the, the parts of bookstores that I think about are actually, I think, a little bit different than the perspective that she gives you as someone who's trying to sell books, right? Like people are coming in to buy um, all kinds of things that are interesting to them and that aren't necessarily the rarefied idea of everyone's getting William Blake, right? No, they're getting how to build a boat dinghy, right? Or they're getting, um, I think Wally asks for uh, a book on, you know, how bodies work or something. Uh, so the, the a lot of the the men who have fought in the war come in because they want histories of the war or biographies of the people who are involved in the war, right? So the, the range of things that she's providing to her community actually is very broad. And it's not necessarily everyone's coming in there to get Lolita. <laughs> people are coming in there to get all kinds of things. It's true. Um, you know, I get, I get, um, you've got male vibes from this book in the beginning. <laughs> A little bit. Uh, it's one of my favorite movies of all time, by the way. You've got mail. Love that movie. <laughs> but it's a little bit, it's a little, I get a vibe from that just because it's like the, the big corporation in the, in the, you've got mail. It's the big corporate like chapters indigo kind of book, uh, chapters in Canada, indigo in, in the States. Um, now, well, it's indigo now in Canada as well. Slowly, they're slowly taking over uh, versus like the independent bookseller. Um, and in, in this book, it's like the, this rich, powerful woman with the law on her side uh, versus the independent bookseller. And that's definitely not something that is associated um, with classical liberalism or with people like Smith and, and others that we talk about a lot um, because we are the corporates. <laughs> yeah. Like classical liberals are on the side of the, the corporate giant taking over the small business and mom pop. Um, but really, aren't we just arguing at the end of the day that if these things happen in a free, actually free market, um, that's what should be happening but if it's actually happening because somebody changed the law randomly and nobody uh, nobody said anything about it then that's probably not great <laughs> yeah, I guess I think about it is um how high are you making your barriers for people to engage in these activities right and I think what you see basically is Mrs. Gammert just like ratcheting up how successful an entrepreneur Florence would have to be to overcome all these obstacles and at some point it's just not practical anymore. Uh, and, and no one else would either after seeing that, right? Um, so I, I do agree that one of the things I like about this book is, is the entrepreneur <laughs> is sort of the hero, but it's also sobering that the heroic entrepreneur is basically crushed by the end of the book and the, the savvy, socially connected politically connected, wealthy woman wins, right? Um, and, and thoroughly wins, right? Florence is leaving town on a boat. <laughs> her, her champion is dead in the street. Um, it is a, she has been thoroughly 
defeated. Um, yep, regulation and red tape in, in the real world outside this book is often what crushes an entrepreneurial spirit. So if that's not true, I don't know what is. Anyway, that's a great part uh, of our conversation to take a break. So uh, I'll be right back with Christy Horpadal very soon. Uh, you are listening to The Curious Task. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Andy Crooks, Vincent Geloso, and Peter Jaworski. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Christy Orpidal. We are talking about the excellent book, The Bookshop by Penelope Fitzgerald. And uh, we briefly spoke about the book Lolita, which many of our listeners might have heard of before. Very controversial book um, that was all the rage at the time um, this book's uh, content was taking place. Uh, the story was taking place. And uh, But it, it, when you read the book the first time, it seems a bit disjointed. Like, why did Penelope Fitzgerald choose to include this part in the book and a book about an entrepreneur being crushed by the powerful um and then there's some lolita sprinkled in there <laughs> so um i'd love to get your perspective christy on on where this is coming from and how it what has to do with the rest of the plot so i think lolita is an interesting choice for fitzgerald um partially because it it is such a controversial book and and it's clear to the readers that it's going to be controversial in this very small town Hardborough that she lives in right this isn't the kind of books that people in Hardborough are normally going to be reading um people in this town are much more likely to want a complete guide to wildflowers <laughs> people in this town are uh, interested in magazines right um so uh, it's it's clearly controversial in the sense that it's not going to be what most of her normal customers are going to be looking to read, but she takes a chance on it because it's a book that she thinks is important. It's a book that she thinks is, is interesting. Um, and also it's a book that helps her make a lot of money, not just from the people who buy it in town. It, it's unclear how many of the people that live in Hardborough actually end up buying the book, but the book gets her a lot of attention and a lot of sales from the areas around her town. So it's, it's the first time in the book that you see her having a really successful entrepreneurial moment is when she buys 250 copies of this book. She redoes her whole window display. Um, even her shop assistant, Christine, looks at her and says, like, what have you done? <laughs> um, but, but it's the beginning of her moment of prosperity. Um, and, and it's, it's also the thing I think that brings her the attention that ends up being her downfall. Um, because I think this is the moment where Mrs. Gammer realizes this isn't just going to naturally go away. This, she is, she has the potential to be successful. She has the potential to make this bookshop into something lasting. And I think that's a big threat to Mrs. Gammer. So her, her big financial success, taking a chance on this book, um, is also the thing that, that that puts her in the spotlight of the people who who don't want her to be successful and who want her to fail. Um, I think one of my favorite lines in the whole book is is when Florence asks her her kind of friend and defender, Mister Brundish, about this book, about whether whether or not she should stock it. Um, and, and she's trying to figure out, is this the kind of thing that should be in a shop, uh, my shop that she cares about? And Mr. Brendish's response is really interesting. He says that um, you should have it because even though people will read it and they won't understand it, it's good to read things that you don't understand. And he sort of makes this sort of simple plea for stretching yourself outside of your normal interests and your normal ideas and and engaging with a, a book that's going to make you ask some hard questions, that's going to present you with things that make you uncomfortable, which as anyone who's 
read Lolita or or even seen the movies um, know is that there's some hard questions and uncomfortable things in that book that if you're reading it and really engaging with it, it's it's challenging you on multiple levels. And so I want I want you to, it would be great if you could talk a little bit more about um, you know how it really affects the rest of the book too and how the plot is formulated around it if you can get into that a little bit more and yeah. what is Lolita anyway there's some people out there that might not have read it or heard about it so especially our younger listeners might have not come across it yet yeah. <laughs> uh yes so uh Lolita is a novel it's written um I think in 1955 so by uh, Vladimir Nabokov and it's it's con Traversal because the protagonist uh, and the narrator is uh, obsessed with a young girl uh, named Dolores. She's 12 years old. Um, he kidnaps and sexually abuses her. And um, it's uh, it's an uncomfortable novel for, for lots of reasons, the way it's written and also the content and subject matter. Um, it's been adapted for movies for a few times. Um, and it's, it's frequently thought of as, as a very good novel, but it's also one that gets banned a lot of the time. And it's one that, um, some people think the, the, the subject matter is just too mature that the certain, especially like younger people shouldn't even have access to it. Um, so, but one of the things that I think is, is interesting about the novel is, uh, Dolores in, Lolita, I think she's 11 or 12 years old when we meet her in the novel, and it's been a while since I've read it, but she's just slightly older than Christine is. So I think there, Christine, who's um, Florence's bookshop assistant. So I think there's also this really interesting kind of contrast between how kind of horrified people are by the content of a book like Lolita and the fact that Christine, who is this this bright, um, hardworking young woman is sort of being trampled in a totally different way in this small town where the people in it and the way the education system is set up are are not set up for her to succeed. Um, I'm not sure how much Fitzgerald is thinking about that when she's writing it, um, but I know I thought about it a lot because their ages are so close um, to each other. They're both kind of very young women who 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 basically have their autonomy taken away from them by the people around them. Um, so I think that's another important part of of the inclusion of Lolita in the story, where we do see Christine uh, as such a as such a main, vibrant, interesting character. I didn't even think about that. That's really interesting. I think that that's true, and I don't know. I think that maybe Fitzgerald thought about it more than we're giving credit for because she got so into the thick envelope and the thin envelope and whether or not the children are going to technical school or um I don't know what the other one was the other school was called sorry do you remember uh, it's basically school. whether or not she's going to be yeah job training or whether or not she's actually going to be white collar or, or blue collar basically yeah yeah <laughs> And the reason that her mom wants to go to the white collar is because she could find a white collar husband and be very comfortable, not because she wanted her to actually succeed in some sort of career or anything like that. But um, she, I have a lot of sympathy for Mrs. Gripping in that conversation. Because oh, yeah, there, there's that one beautiful line where she says, um, Christine's going to be hanging her own laundry for the rest of her life. And it's such a humble aspiration for your daughter to just think like, I want her to have a better life than me, right? Because Mrs. Gripping's going to be hanging her own laundry until the day that she dies. Like she knows what that is and she wants something better for Christine. And, and she's just been told by everyone that her daughter's going to have just as hard a life as she's had. Um, so that, that, I find that a really touching, hard moment in the book um, where all Mrs. Gripping wants is for her daughter to have access to something better than she had. Um, and I think Christine does actually, there's hints that Christine might get that, but it's another one of these things that I think Fitzgerald leaves ambiguous. You don't know what could happen um, to Christine. Maybe she'll work in this other bookstore and maybe she'll 
have other sorts of experiences that help her have a better life than, than the life her parents had. But you could also see her, uh, you know, getting a boyfriend just like her older sister and getting pregnant and getting married and, and having basically the same life as her mother. That It's clear that that is a possibility for Christine that we, that we see as, as maybe not even just possible, but probable. Uh, so thinking about uh, these themes that you're coming up with that I haven't even thought about, I'm wondering if there are other themes that you uh, came across that I haven't um, pointed out yet. And I'd love to hear that about that from you and, and, and how it sort of relates to our theme of why books are important in a liberal society. <clears throat> so uh, one of the characters that I find really interesting in this book that we haven't talked at all about is Milo, who works for the BBC. He sort of has a fancy reputation in the town because he works in the city and he works for the BBC. Um, and he's actually just a weak, shallow person. And I think he's such an interesting character, partially because he's instrumental in Florence's downfall, but she doesn't realize it. So he's someone who she doesn't completely trust him, but she trusts him enough that he's basically, uh, you know, she she leaves him in charge of the bookshop when she's not there, and he closes the bookshop down, so there's no sales, which which of course she doesn't know that he's doing. Um, he lets in an inspector who who writes up an order saying this is too damp for anyone to live or work here, um, and he never tells her that that's happening. So he's this example of this very weak character who's who's getting by on charisma and social connections and um he's actually like a very dangerous person but hard it's hard to recognize that he's dangerous until until the very end when you see how much a part of mrs gammert's machinations he's actually been um so I think he's a, he's an interesting character that we haven't talked about yet. And I think he also represents this group of people who are more interested in the appearance of being cultured and the, the appearance of exclusivity and sophistication. Um, but you scratch the surface and they're, they're, uh, he's a really bad person um, who has done very bad things. <laughs> Yeah. And I like the part in the book where she says, don't you work for the public broadcaster? Like you're getting paid by taxpayers and you don't even go to work. And he's like, Meh, what are you going to do? That's the job. <laughs> I thought it was funny. <laughs> but yeah, I think he, he was an interesting part of the book as well. Um, and any other themes that you were thinking about that we we should talk about? Um, I don't think I have anything else off the top of my head right now. Okay, so let's transition into talking about why books are important in a liberal society and, and sort of bring in everything we've spoken about and talk about um, the main question that we're asking ourselves. And we're, we are asking a bigger question than just like whether or not what this book do for us in, in, in discovering these ideas. This is just one book, um, but the book itself, like not this book exactly, but books in general, um, are important in a liberal society, but there's a lot of reasons for that. And this book really gives us insight into why. Um, I'd love to hear from you on that. Yeah, so I have a couple things that I think are really important to, to think about the question of why are books and reading important in a liberal society? One of them is I think that really good books can teach us about consequences. Um, and I think that that's something that's important to understand. You've You've got one short life to live. Um, you can only experience so much in, in that life. Uh, and one thing books allow us to do is to understand possible consequences of different actions in different worlds and different rules and how it affects people. So I think if you're interested in kind of a consequentialist perspective, which I think a lot of liberals are, we're really interested in, well, what happens if we do that? And what's the outcome? And I want to judge the outcome in addition to judging the means. Um, I think that literature gives you a way to, to understand consequences in a, in a different way than just studying history or studying theory. Um, I also think that 
literature might be especially important for liberals because I think part of a foundation in a liberal society is uh, having sympathy for other people and, and trusting other people. And I think that the literatures and novels uh, help you develop those abilities in different ways. I think that the most obvious, perhaps the most superficial one is you can develop sympathy with a character, right? So you're reading a book, you really like the character, the character reminds you of you. Um, that's a certain kind of sympathy. You're stretching your sympathy ability there. Um, but I think as you go further and, and being a reader and, and thinking about books, you can also realize there's authors, right? So Penelope Fitzgerald is not Florence Green, right? So the sympathy I feel for Florence Green as a character when she's having that painful conversation with her accountant who's saying, why did you do these things? And she's saying, because it was beautiful, right? I, I sympathize with Florence there because she's so clearly in pain at being asked these questions. Um, but I can also sympathize, I hope, with Penelope Fitzgerald as an author who's interested in these characters and what happens to them. And then I think another level of sympathy that you get to is um, the sympathy that comes from sharing a book with someone or talking about a book with someone um, and seeing that they can get different things out of that book or different things out of that author. So I think those are three different ways that you can kind of stretch your sympathetic imagination using books. Um, I also think it's important to realize how amazing it is to be in a society where literacy is valued and literacy is almost universal and where books are cheap and where people have access to them. Um, this is something we take for granted I know I take it for granted, but um, if you think about especially girls and women having access to education, especially if you think about people being wealthy enough to afford to, to buy books, um, there's even a line in this book where Florence says she could remember where the books, uh, the everyman books were the only respectable books to have, but now there's these paperbacks, um, right? The, the invention of the paperback, um, the invention even of the everyman library, the sort of large publishing democratizing process, right? We're going to give everyone access to these works um, and let anybody read them and let anybody buy them. They're going to be cheap enough to buy them. You're going to be literate so you can read them. There's even going to be communities of people who will who will talk to you about them. Um, I think those are those are also amazing things that are helping to create a, a liberal society as well. And that's why uh, there's such an emphasis put uh, by liberals on ban on not banning books and not uh, stopping people from accessing uncomfortable, often offensive material. Um, what that's something that we can learn, I think, from from this book and and the author. And maybe that's not what the author was aiming for, but it's certainly something that I take away from this. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly Mr. Brundish and Florence Green think that you shouldn't necessarily be sh shielded from books that are uncomfortable, right? I think just the stocking of Lolita and the sort of promoting of it, right? Sort of putting it in the window and saying, come and buy this uncomfortable book. Um, they want people to, to be challenged by things they don't understand. They want people to think beyond the thoughts that they've already had and that are comfortable to them. Um, and, and I think that's important too, is recognizing that other people can get something out of something that you might not get the same thing out of, but you shouldn't deny them the ability to have that thing or to, to access that thing. That's true. So we're getting to the end of the episode and I want to end things by talking about the ending of the book and the ending of the movie and how they differ and what you think about all of that. Um, I really think the movie ending was, <clears throat> I don't know, easier to swallow <laughs> than the book. I don't want to say it was better than the book ending. Uh, we had a little discussion before we started, uh, you and I, about why that's not the case, even though I, I came into the saying, the movie ending was so much better, <laughs> but only because it made me feel better, not because, <laughs> because there was some justice to it, not because it was actual reality, not because it was, and I think thinking about it more, the book version obviously is written better, 
than the screenplay ending and also just reflects reality more. And I think that's what she was going for, the author originally. Uh, so they took some, uh, they took some, uh, what is the word? What did it say? Oh, they took some liberties <laughs> with the ending. Um, and Not a word I would think you would have trouble coming up with. <laughs> I know, right? Exactly. On the tip of your tongue, always. <laughs> they took some liberties with the ending in the movie. Uh, can you tell us what that the, that is and how what the difference was between the two, and um, why you think that perhaps the book ending actually works better? So, just for those of you who are never going to read the book or watch the movie, the, the short version is in the book, as we've said before, um, Mrs. Gammert succeeds. the The bookstore is shut down. The books are, and Florence's car are taken to pay back the bank loan. She's left with nothing, no prospects, no friends um, on a boat sailing away. Um, But in the movie version, as Florence is sailing away, she looks back and she sees a giant fire burning. And the presumption is that Christine has used a fairly dangerous furnace that we see earlier on, both in the book and the movie, um, to light the old house on fire so that it can't be used for the art center. It can't be used for anything. Um, and in the movie, this is a quite a triumphant moment um, because it's sort of the revenge that Florence would never have taken for herself, but it's still... Mrs. Gammert doesn't win. And uh, I, I agree that there's something very emotionally satisfying about that. But I think it, it does fundamentally change what the book is trying to point our attention to. Um, so I guess I would say I, I think the movie is great. And I think the book is great. But I actually think they they have become very different things based on that final change. There's other changes in the movie that I think change the book a little, but I would actually say that that big a change at the ending actually does kind of act backwards to change the entire book. And let's not forget that in the movie, Christine is revealed to be the narrator this whole time, which we didn't know. And she grows up to become a bookshop owner uh, because she was so inspired. Because first of all, um, you know, Florence actually left all her books like all the books that remained to her something like that and uh, so she was able to start a bookshop and she seemed very successful so you know that also shows you like all those people thought she was gonna end up in this horrible job or like married to some guy who can't provide for her but she's doing it herself she opened a bookshop and it's successful and she looks very comfortable and happy and she really learned something from this whole thing so it really wraps things up in a bow uh, whereas in the book I'm pretty sure that Christine probably ended up exactly where her mother worried she would because it's a very realistic look at at, at society and, and the world that she's taking um, versus the movie where you want to feel good at the end of the movie so that, you know, he's like, that was a great movie. <laughs> Rather than that was a great exploration of society and its ills. <laughs> so I think that that was an aspect of it. But... Yeah, you could actually, one of the things that I think is funny is you could actually kind of recreate the book if you just stopped the movie. Yeah. Right? At, at just like two to three minutes before the end, just stop it right there. And 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 you actually pretty much have the book. But um, that ending, it's very satisfying. Um, but also, it's not Penelope Fitzgerald's ending. It's, it's a different ending. It's a it, it's a different if it's di- it's a different story if it ends that way yeah and Florence is made to be more of a heroic figure because she introduces Christine to reading and and she leaves all the books and all this she's very she's a big hero in the movie whereas in the book uh, people look up to her because she's owning a shop not particularly a bookshop but just a shop, she's becoming a shopkeeper and that gives them some sort of respect for her but she's not exactly a hero people actually kind of look down at her often in the book so that's a bit more um realistic as well so you don't not everybody is like a, a master hero in their story <laughs> or looked at in that way anyway um not depressing note which is a really good place to leave things because the book has a very depressing ending so <laughs> i don't feel bad about the fact that we're ending this conversation um, with the, the sadder parts of, of life and 
just talking about that. Even though there's a lot of really happy moments and really triumphant moments in the book, it kind of sounds um, a little bit too realistically, perhaps, and a little sad. Um, but we have talked about a lot, so let's bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. Let me ask you, Christy, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on how books can advance liberal society? So I guess some things that I hope we made clear in the podcast are um, reading books, even challenging books, is good for you. And the reading and conversations about those books are, are important for developing your sympathetic imagination, but also important for living in a free and tolerant society. I think I think reading books and thinking about how other people think and feel and experience things is important to that. Um, I also want to provide people with an example of a beautiful book that isn't hitting you over the head with things that are important and true. Um, you don't have to read Atlas Shrugged. You don't have to read um, 1984. I've read and enjoyed those books, but there's there's lots of other stuff out there that you can read that can help you learn about people in the world um, that aren't necessarily in the in the canon that gets mentioned a lot. So I hope this is another example that people can read and point to and think about that gives them something different. Um, and I know it's kind of dark to end on arson of a bookshop. So I'm going to propose an alternate ending, which is another one of my favorite lines from the book where um, Florence kind of wants to talk to the priest, but isn't sure about talking to the vicar <laughs> um and she she's looking at him spending a lot of his time doing things that don't seem to be his calling and she says that she wished she could see him for a moment simply to ask him was william blake right when he said that everything possible to be believed in was an image of the truth um and i don't know if your readers have read william blake or if they're interested in reading william blake but i think that's a great question to think about, especially when you're reading novels or experiencing art. Um, and is anything that you can believe in some way an image of truth that you can take with you and share with other people? So I would choose to end it there. I think that's a great place to end the episode. Thank you so much for speaking with me today about this and for uh, you know getting our listeners interested in a book they might not have heard of. I certainly hadn't heard of it before you suggested it to me. So thank you so much. Thank you, Sabine. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.